your children's lead disciple makers. You see on the screens that uh, we're still in our Why We Exist little short three-week sermon series, which will be concluding today. Today, uh, we want to um, sort of round out the series by looking at what the motive of the church is. And this would certainly apply to us collectively, uh, what the motive, what our motive together in aiming to be a biblical church is, and it would also apply to us as um, individuals. Mike mentioned that next week, we will be starting 1 Timothy. Just to draw your attention to your bulletin, inside your bulletin is one of these cards. It's got the name of the series and the date. Uh, I'm sorry, the, the name of the series, the book, and then on the back are the sermons, titles, and the weeks. So the text will be going through which week. Might be something good to hang on to, and if you're in a discipling relationship or with a roommate or your kids, you could read ahead of time. That would help you be prepared to get the most out of that. So keep that or use it to invite somebody else. I hope that'll be a great time that we have together. We've said in this short series that although every true church has exactly the same reason to exist, each church must contextualize what the scriptures say and apply it in their own setting. And so they might describe their purpose using slightly different language. Here, we are simply trying to be faithful to what the Bible says and ask God to help us be fruitful. And we've put it this way, that we're a church family making disciples and helping churches for the worship and glory of God. Would you read that with me one last time? We're a church family, making disciples and helping churches for the worship and glory of God. So we talked uh, three weeks ago about how we are a church family, that that's our identity, that we're not a, uh, a building, we're not a denomination, we're not the pastors, the church is the people. And the people have been put into a certain kind of relationship with one another because of the grace of God. So we are a church family. That means we're brothers and sisters, and we operate based on love. We love one another because Christ first loved us. And then we talked last week about what we do, namely that we make disciples and help churches. Matthew 28, the end of Matthew 28 is known as the Great Commission. And we considered last week that the Great Commission doesn't mean less than each of us seeking to do personal evangelism and personal discipleship. It's not less than that, but it's more. We know that because when we ask the question, what did the disciples understand Jesus to mean when he spoke the Great Commission to them? Well, we know what they understood him to be saying because of what they went and did. And what they did was they preached the gospel, they planted churches, and they strengthened churches all over the known world. And so the Great Commission is about sharing Christ, those who receive his word, being baptized, becoming a part of a local church, and then you grow up together in Christ in that church and be concerned for other churches. Today, in terms of this last sermon in the series, we want to talk about our motive, which is there at the end of the sentence, for the worship and glory of God. 
I will begin reading in verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. I think that this is among the most beautiful, meaningful passages in all of Scripture. And I hope today to give us just a little taste of what it means. This might be a great passage to work on perhaps over the rest of the year, memorizing if you don't know it already, or at least memorizing the four main categories of issues that this passage speaks to. There are, there, there's an opening sentence about God being blessed because He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then so rich is that statement that God has already blessed us that it then takes two paragraphs to describe what those blessings are. What I'd love to do today now that we've read it is to go back through and consider each of these four categories of blessings that the passage gives us and then to show at the end how this speaks to the motive of us as individuals and as a church. Now, in the original language of the, the New Testament, this is one long sentence, and it is a powerful, beautiful sentence in which it's very clear there's four main things that are being emphasized. The way you can tell that in English is if you follow through and look for the in hymns. So the word in him. When you see those, you're getting, being given a category or a spiritual truth that's being emphasized. So the first one is in verses four through six, namely that he chose us. God chose us. We'll talk about in a minute what that means. The second one is in verses seven to 10, that he redeemed us, that he redeemed us. So in both of these, what we're being told is God is to be praised, God is blessed, God is worthy of honor and glory because He chose us. 
because he redeemed us. Number three, he gave us an inheritance. That's in verses 11 and 12. And then finally, what probably feels the most distant to many of us in terms of understanding, he sealed us with the Holy Spirit, verses 13 and 14. So if you don't feel like, yeah, I want to go after memorizing this whole passage, you could work at that. All of us could learn those. He chose us. God is to be praised because he chose us, because he redeemed us, because he gave us an inheritance, and because he sealed us with the Holy Spirit. Each one of those has uh, attending, supporting, subordinate ideas, but those are the four main things these, these two paragraphs are about. God's blessed us with every blessing. Well, what are those blessings? That's what they are. And this is true for every Christian hearing them today. Notice that it says in verse 3, every spiritual blessing. Friends, God does not hoard his blessings. He's a free and generous giver. And he has given not some, not quite a few, not most, and you'll get the rest when you do better in life. But rather, he has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ already. And so in our remaining time, I'd love to just spend a few minutes on each one of those and then try to tie them together in the end. So first, God chose us. In verses 4 through 6, we see that explained. The first reason in Paul's mind that God should be praised is because we are his people because he chose us. Notice here that there's no hint of controversy. There's no anger. There's no mention of any particular theologians. There's no debate. As Paul thought about this doctrine, he thought about it as a principal reason why God is to be praised. And notice that while this doctrine certainly includes some mystery, that is, we won't fully grasp all that it means and is, there's no mention of that either. It's as though in Paul's mind, God's electing love is not too complicated to have practical application and implications for us. It's not meant for the academy and for arguments and for people to throw their hands up and say, ah, we'll never understand it anyway. No, in his mind, it's the first thing for which a church should give praise. Now, brothers and sisters, notice what these verses say about when, when we were chosen. Do you see it? Was it when you stopped that particularly egregious, sinful behavior? Then. God was impressed and he chose you. Is that what it says? No, he says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. What that means is 
before there was anything. Back when all that there was was God. Before he created anything that we would see God says, back then, before even time, he chose us in him. That is amazing. Let that sink in for a minute. Back in eternity past, when there was only God, before creating anything, God made up his mind that he would have a people for himself. Do you see, brothers and sisters, what that means? It means that your salvation doesn't rest fully and finally on you. It means that your choice of God matters and is important, and no one is saved without it. But your choice of God is because of God's choice of you. Notice in verse 4, at the end of verse 4, there are two little words, two precious words. In love. Do you see them? In love. If you write in your Bible, you might circle those. In love. God's choosing, electing, predetermining is all about his love. God's love is unlike any other love we will ever experience. Because God's love is not dependent upon the worthiness of the recipient of that love. It is rather based on his will, his decision to love. God loves us while we were yet sinners. When there was nothing lovable, God chose to love. Christian, this means that your salvation is in no way dependent on your works or merit but on God's kind, gracious, merciful choice. And this means we can rest in him. You are ultimately his because he wanted you. He wanted you enough to choose you before you were holy that he might make you holy. He wanted you enough to adopt you into his family. He wanted you enough to give up his beloved son in your place. This is the glorious news of the gospel. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now I've done this long enough to know that in a room this size, this lands on different people in different ways. And we have, I think wisely, chosen not to require unanimous consensus as a church in our doctrinal confession that everyone agree with everything I've just said. And so that means that some people who make up the membership of Church on Mill would hold to this understanding that I've given you of the doctrine of election or predestination, but, but others not so much or not at all. And we feel quite happy and comfortable with that as your pastors. If you're someone that would say, I'm sold out and I agree with all of that, 
then I would say, remember those two little words, in love. This doctrine ought never be used as a billy club on somebody else. If you're someone that would say, I don't like that stuff, Chuck, let's go on to the next thing, please. Then I would simply want to say two things to you. Number one, I love you. And we can be members in the same body for the next 30 years, and this will never be a bone of contention between us, as far as I'm concerned. I have said a lot this morning that I didn't used to agree with. And so it's fine. Relationally, we're fine. But I'd also say to you, would, would you consider saying something to God like this? God, I don't agree with him. But if that's what Ephesians 1 means, then in my regular reading of the Bible, would you help me to see it other places? And then just read your Bible. And if this is the correct interpretation of Ephesians 1, then you're going to be finding it many other places. And if it's not, you won't. So I'll just encourage you to pray that kind of prayer and then move on. Now, the second big truth for us to consider today is down in verses 7 to 10. Namely, this bucket of truth would be that he redeemed us. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Now, redeem or redemption isn't a word we use very often. You might, in fact, only use it at the arcade. So you put your tokens in, you play some skee-ball, out comes the tickets, you take a huge heaping pile of those tickets, and you go, and with the equivalent of those tickets, you spent $15 to buy an airhead. Then you eat the airhead and you enjoy it, and you jump up and down and feel like you were a victor, right? That's redeeming those tickets for something. That's about the only time we use that word in a non-religious context. While the word isn't part of our common vocabulary, it is very much part of God's. And God wants you to know it. He wants us to know it, that we have been redeemed, that we have redemption. So what is it? Well, Christian, to have redemption right now means that in the past, you had been a captor to sin, that in a willful rejection of God's good law, his truth, we all instead chose to do our own thing. And that puts us in spiritual handcuffs, crippling our will, enslaving our desires, pushing us away from the one for whom we were created to know and love and obey. And redemption is that God sees that and knows it, and he has paid a ransom to get us out of that slavery to sin. Another way to say it is, in, re in redemption, we have forgiveness of sins. That forgiveness 
gives us freedom in Christ. These are among the most precious truths of Christianity. Friend, if you're new to church or just considering the things of God, this Bible is long, 66 books. It's a library, not a simple one book. Spread out, written over a period of about 1,600 years on three different continents in three different languages. It's a lot to learn. In fact, we Christians get together to do this every Sunday morning, and then we do it in other environments throughout the week, and we read it ourselves regularly. We'll spend the rest of our lives learning. But where do you start? Well, a great place to start is with the heart of what Christianity is. Christianity is the message that redemption is available in Christ. That you can, in fact, be rescued out of a life apart from God, enslaved to sin, and be given new life in Christ. If that's something you want to learn more about, I'm confident that there are people around you or people you came with or any of the pastors or staff who would love to meet up with you and talk more about that. Christian, this redemption has come about by the shed blood of Jesus. Jesus lived the life we were supposed to live in order that he could die the death we deserved to die. And this redemption and forgiveness is not ours in accordance with our effort. So how hard you try to resolve your slavery to sin is not in accordance with the extent to which you are forgiven. Are you with me? Now, should we put spiritual labors into growing up in Christ? Absolutely. But the saving love of God is not given in accordance to what you do, but in accordance to what Christ has already done. Jesus on the cross did not stretch out his arms and say, my part's finished. You do yours. He said, it is finished, complete. The gospel is something we receive. It is not something we strain ourselves into by our efforts. Redemption, that is, is a gift. If you look closely at verse 9, you'll see that this was God's purpose. And in verse 10, you'll see that it's God's plan. This is God's plan. And this plan is so much bigger than you and me. This passage tells us that it's cosmic in scope. It's a plan to unite all things in Him. And then because we wouldn't be sure what all things means, it goes on and says, things in heaven and things on earth. What does that include? Not, not a trick question. It includes everything. God has united all things in Him, in Jesus. Things in heaven and things on earth. Church, the entire universe is being ripped apart by sin and its horrid effects. That's true of human beings. It's true of created order itself. If the ravages of this chaos hasn't affected you much recently, 
In other words, if you've been able to sort of exist in a bubble where everything seems to be going well, then friends, I would say, you're probably not paying attention to the other people around you. You're probably not living very deeply in community. Because here's the cold, hard truth. We, we just take turns having problems and causing problems, and then we die. Am I wrong? And so what does God want us to do between here and the return of Christ or our death? Well, it's not to live in a bubble, and when our lives are going relatively smoothly, then everything's great, but rather it's to realize we will sin, we will have problems we didn't cause, but are part of living in a fallen world, we will have health difficulties, and there will be times where we're not in the middle of those, and we have bandwidth to help others. And so we want to live in such a way, church, in which we're here for each other. And if a church labors together to love one another in Christ, then there'll always be some people that are not in the midst of a particular trying season and can bless the others. And then you trade, and then you die. This is how it works. But the big truth that we can cling to is that God is uniting all things in Christ. He's bringing them back together making them whole again. This is what God's doing. Now, the, the third great reason to praise God is that he's given believers an inheritance. You'll see that in verses 11 and 12. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Now, I don't ordinarily do this, but I think in this case it's important to show there are actually two things that might mean. And the ESV is giving us one way, but some of you have some translations that would lean on another possible interpretation. So the words, we have obtained an inheritance, in Greek is one single word. We have obtained an inheritance. And that one word may be referring to one of two things. It might mean that in Christ, we've been given our portion of every spiritual blessing. So God from his, his storehouse of riches has, has drawn out blessings and he's already given them to us. They are our portion. They are our inheritance. If a relative dies and has three benefactors that are receiving from that inheritance, then they're divided among those three. This could mean God's taken from his endless blessings and given each of us all that we need for life and godliness. That's the way the ESV is translating it. It also might mean that because it's a passive verb, then it may mean that in Christ we are God's inheritance. That at the end of time, when God redeems his 
fallen world that God will receive an inheritance, a special treasure. Now, both those ideas are true. So this isn't one's a heretical position the Bible might be teaching and the other one's good. Now, either one of those could be true, and other passages confirm both of those ideas. I'm not sure which one it means, and at the end of the day, it doesn't matter all that much because both are true. But the question would be, what was Paul thinking? It seems that the ESV is telling us that God is so powerful, that God reigns so supreme, that every time he writes a check of grace to cover the debt that we had incurred, that every time God does that for all eternity, God will never draw a blank check. He'll, he'll never write a check in such a way that that check will then get cashed and bounce and his riches won't be enough to cover that sin. We are his inheritance and he has given us an inheritance. His inheritance is the one he's given us. That from him we have everything we need. That God predestined you. That God set his love on you that you would be happy in Christ. And that God opened his blessings and gave you his treasures. Amazing. Now the fourth and final bucket we want to look at and consider is the one that would maybe be the least understood. It's that he sealed us with the Holy Spirit, down in verses 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. What's that describing? That's describing the moment of conversion. That's describing when you came to see and understand your need for God and the wonder of who Christ is and trusted him. Everyone who is saved has had a moment like that. I don't mean that to say that if you don't know when that moment was, the very first moment like that, then you're not saved. I don't mean that at all. I'm not actually sure the exact moment that I was converted. I can't tell you the day. But the point is, no one's born a Christian. We're born alienated from God. But at a moment, the spiritual light bulb goes on and we see reality for what it is. We are sinners. He's a savior. I want that. I want him. And in that moment, that's what's being described here in these verses. What happened in that moment? Well, one of the things is, the end of verse 13 says, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. What does that mean? You were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Does this mean spiritually speaking, that God like picks you up, puts you in a spiritual Ziploc baggie, 
squeezes all the air out of it, seals it shut, sticks you in the freezer so that spiritually you're going to be good for the rest of life and not get stale and putrid. No. No, not what it means. Sealed doesn't refer to Ziplocs at all. It's referring to being marked. Sealing in the ancient world had to do with coming under the ownership of something or someone, coming to be protected by someone, coming under being guarded by the authority of someone. The word was very often used, and almost certainly it means this here. When a Roman official would send a letter to someone, they wanted that letter to come with the authority of Rome, with the guarantee of Rome. They wanted it to be protected by Rome from the person who wrote it to the receiver, the recipient, getting it. And they wanted the full weight of all that is Rome to be understood to be coming with that letter. This was obviously before WhatsApp, Discord, email, text message. And so to get something from someone to somebody else, If a Roman official high up wanted to tell some other far-off province, I want to tell you this as governor of that region, he would write his letter, he would put it in an envelope, he'd pour a little bit of hot wax over the seal, and then he'd press that Roman signet into it, such that the deliverer of that message understood I've got to make sure this reaches the target unopened and unfidgeted um, with. That's the technical term. Nothing's been added, nothing's been taken away. It's preserved. And when the recipient has it and breaks that seal, they know I'm hearing the weight, the authority, the ownership of Rome. Now, what would that mean for us? Well, Christian, when you heard the gospel and came to see your need for God and came to delight in the wonder of who Jesus is, when you repented and believed, then you were marked by God. You were given His seal. Now, Later today, you can try, when you're alone, looking all over your body. You won't find that seal. This isn't a physical marking. It's a spiritual, internal impression. That marking is, in fact, the Holy Spirit. And this is done so that we would know we belong to God. That we would know we have spiritual protection, that we're guarded by our good king. The Holy Spirit is given to each of us. That as we listen to God in the scriptures and live thoughtfully in prayer, that we would have greater and greater assurance and confirmation of whose we are. And that between here and the end, we would know We have a guarantee of what's to come. We have a down payment. We have 
the Holy Spirit. And so church, praise God. Praise God for choosing us. Praise God for redeeming us. Praise God for giving us an inheritance. Praise God for sealing us. And I've said all of that in order to say this. God did and is doing all of that for his glory. God's ultimate aim in salvation is that he would be seen for who he is, enjoyed for who he is, recognized for who he is, exalted as who he is. And if that's God's ultimate aim, it ought also be our ultimate aim. If you look at this passage closely again, you'll notice there's a certain refrain that comes up multiple times. If you're taking notes, you might note verse 6, verse 12, and verse 14. 6, 12, 14. In verse 6, that refrain comes to the praise of his glorious grace. In verse 12, to the praise of his glory. In verse 14, to the praise of his glory. Now, I learned growing up the hard way, if mama said something to me three times, it's probably important. If God says something to us three times, his intention is that we'd pay attention, that we'd sit up on the edge of our seats, that we'd notice it. Now, you're here on a holiday weekend. You're like the super, super, super Christians. <laughs> All right? So, I want to give you, in the last couple of minutes, a bonus truth. This is bonus content. Insiders only. All right? You ready? Okay. So, one way to look at the organization of this passage is what we've done so far. That there's these four big ideas, four big buckets. And that's definitely the thrust of the passage. And yet, sort of over here on the side... There's another thing the author is doing. And that is, in those three occasions of to the praise of his glory, or something like that. So in verse 6, then again in verse 12, then again in verse 14. The way salvation is expressed, those three refrains come at the conclusion of us being told about something each member of the Trinity did in our salvation. And so what God is very carefully doing is saying the whole triune God is involved in your salvation. It's really cool. So if I draw that out for you, God the Father choosing us and redeeming us, those first two buckets. Why did he do that? To the praise of his glorious grace, verse 6. Then down to verse 12. God the Son, Jesus Christ, redeeming us 
to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, God the Holy Spirit being the down payment, sealing us. What's that about? Why did he do that? To the praise of his glory. Friends, we're plumbing down in the very depths of the very nature and character of God when we talk about salvation. Because God, before he made anything determined in himself, that he would initiate, perform, and accomplish cosmic uniting salvation, and Father, Son, and Spirit will all be involved to the praise of his glorious grace. Isn't that cool? Church, the ultimate aim of the church is the worship and glory of God. Do we want to see people's lives improved? Of course. Do we want to hopefully build something that will outlast all of us and continue to reach the next generation? Of course. Do we need help getting from here to there? Of course. Does Tempe need a gospel witness here? Of course. But why? Ultimately, it's so that people who are worshiping false gods would stop it and would worship him, that he would receive rightful praise, and that as he receives rightful praise, he could make himself known. That is, we would see his glory. The church exists for the glory of God. The world needs no church that is a cheap knockoff of what the world can offer. Those kinds of churches are maybe well-intended, but very frustrating. Because you're not going to draw the world by choosing to be like the world. And in fact, every denomination that has chosen to go that route in terms of belief loses people. The world has more resources financially, more pizzazz, more Hollywood than the church this side of heaven ever will. Those kind of churches are a waste. What the world is in desperate need of for are churches that are centered on God and that are content with whatever God chooses to do. Churches that understand in Christ we have been made family. And so we work hard at loving each other well, really living as brothers and sisters and understanding in the family of God, just like your physical family, we got some weird aunts and uncles. But we labor together, we love each other, we help each other. And you're so good at that, I wanna thank you for excelling in that way. And we love by making disciples and helping churches. And we do so ultimately because God's worthy of worship and praise. 
And that's what he's focused on, and therefore that's what we're going to be focused on. By God's grace, let's continue being that kind of church. And let's hold our arms and hearts open so that God might use us to help other churches get planted and revitalized who will be those kinds of churches. This is who we are. Therefore, this is what we seek to do. Ultimately, that God would be seen and known and enjoyed. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in this series we've been able to carefully consider what the church is. We thank you that in Christ we're a family. It's popular today to say we're a family, whether it's a sports team or a restaurant or a church. But at the end of the day, the Bible uses that language to describe us. And so we say, thank you, God, that you've made us family. Would I ask you, Lord, now, on behalf of my brothers and sisters, that even as I'm praying, would you bring to mind each one of us, a, a member maybe we didn't see today, or somebody we know who's going through a hard time, that we might reach out to them and serve them this week. And God, we want to work hard together at making disciples and helping churches. So give us opportunity this week when somebody says, how was your weekend? At work or school or the gym or grocery store, that the thing we choose to talk about in that brief moment isn't the movie we saw on Monday or the sleeping in we get to do. But rather we can simply say, I went to church with my church family and had a great time. That's a simple way to throw out a faith flag and just see if anybody's interested in talking more. That's the, the early steps toward making disciples. Give us the courage this week to do that. And Father, as we seek to make disciples and help churches, by your grace, would you keep us centered on the motive? That motive ultimately being not about the amassing of political power, not about the growing of a brand, but the worship and glory of God. We pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen. Amen.